Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 39. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him, do, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's pray together. Lord, we've been speaking and singing about your triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, but we're reminded by the end of the week, they were crying for your crucifixion. Today, Lord, we stop to remember from the scriptures just exactly what you were doing on the cross on our behalf. This coming week, this week, this coming Thursday, we'll be reminded of just how significant was your suffering on that cross, the medical aspects of the suffering of Christ. And then, Lord, next Sunday we will celebrate that you could not be kept in the grave, that you came forth victorious, and you proved by your resurrection that the Father had accepted your sacrifice and that the forgiveness of sins was available to everyone. Today, Lord, I pray that you'll speak to our hearts, those that are here in this room and those that are watching us. I pray, Lord, that they'll have an open heart to hear of this great sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. In your name I pray, amen. Today, as you have already heard, is Palm Sunday. It begins this Holy Week, this Passion Week. It's a week that if you're not familiar with what happens on each day of the week, I encourage you to pick up our Connect magazine because on each day we have something written, each page we have something written for each day of this week to remind you what was going on in the gospel stories that takes place and that unfolds over the course of these coming days. And you want to read along with us and be reminded of what Jesus was doing on our behalf. But today is Palm Sunday. Jesus came from the Mount of Olives. He crossed through the Kidron Valley and he makes his way up the hillside toward the Temple Mount. If you've been there, you know that on the Mount of Olives you can look over and see the Temple Mount. You can look over and see the old city of Jerusalem, at least much of the old city of Jerusalem. And as Jesus is making his way down that mountainside, through that valley, and back up the hillside toward the Temple Mount, 
There are people that are beginning to gather around him and they're beginning to sing his praises. Hallelujah. The son of David, they're looking for their deliverer. They're believing that Jesus and do believe that Jesus is their Messiah. Most of these Jews on this particular occasion on Palm Sunday would have been Jews that were Galilean Jews. If you remember, Jesus spent most of his ministry, or at least much of his ministry, around the Sea of Galilee, in the cities around the Sea of Galilee. He came to Judea, he came to Jerusalem as well, but much of his ministry was done around the Sea of Galilee. These were people who had heard him as he taught and as he spoke. These were people who had seen many of the miracles that he had performed. These were people who were well aware of who he was. And they, like Jesus, had come to Jerusalem because this was the feast of the Passover that was coming. And they were gathering in the city. And so when they see Jesus, someone with whom they're familiar, coming down the Mount of Olives and going through the Valley of Kidron and up toward the Temple Mount, they recognize this is Jesus. Jesus, this is Jesus. And they began shouting and they began celebrating. They were looking for a national and a political deliverer. Little did they understand that, in fact, Jesus had not come on this occasion for political or national purposes, but that on this occasion, Jesus had come for spiritual purposes. He had come to be the spiritual deliverer. Of mankind. Taking their garments, their outer coats, they lay them down in front of the donkey on which Jesus is riding, which, by the way, is a prophecy being fulfilled in the life of Jesus all the way back to Zechariah chapter 9, nearly 500 years before. Zechariah had predicted that the Messiah would come on the back of a donkey, that there would be this kind of adulation, Psalm 118, this kind of adulation that would be given to him. They cut down palm branches and they waved those palm branches and they laid those palm branches before the animal. All of this was a means of demonstrating his royalty. He's coming in on the red carpet, if you will. The king is here. He has finally arrived. Our deliverer is coming to Jerusalem. And they are thrilled. But please don't miss, as you read through the gospel stories, not just the cheers and the shouts of adulation for Jesus. Please don't miss the tears of Jesus as he makes this journey. The gospel tells us that, that Jesus, as he could see from the, the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley and see the city of Jerusalem, he knew why he was coming, even if the others did not know. And he knew that he would be rejected by the people of Jerusalem. And it says that he wept for the city of Jerusalem. Can you see the contradiction of pictures? On the one hand, there are people who are celebrating and cheering and happy that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. On the other hand, there is a Savior who's fulfilling all of these prophecies, who's weeping tears because he knows what lay ahead in the coming days. He rides into the city and there is a great joyous occasion that occurs that we celebrate every year on Palm Sunday. But by the end of the week, those cheers had been turned into cries for crucify him. 
Those Jews at the end of the week that are calling for his crucifixion are likely not the same ones that were there crying out and calling out in adulation of the the Lord Jesus Christ. Those were Galilean Jews. For the most part, these at the end of the week are Judean Jews. They are Jerusalem Jews. They have long since rejected Jesus. They want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. They're going to call for his crucifixion. Who do you want me to release, Barabbas or Jesus? And who do they ask for? They ask for Barabbas. Well, what am I going to do with Jesus? What am I going to do with Jesus? They said, crucify him over and over and over and over again. If you know the gospel story, you know that they end up on Thursday in an upper room where Jesus has this incredible conversation with his disciples. You find it in John chapter 14 to 17. And he has this conversation with his disciples, and it ends with the observance of Passover. And in the middle of the Passover, he institutes what we now call today the Lord's Supper, something that we uh, consistently and consciously participate in on a regular basis to remind us of the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. And then he leaves that room with his disciples, and he heads out toward the Mount of Olives to pray among the olive trees. He leaves the disciples just outside the garden, just close to him, but not with him. He goes deeper into that garden. He falls down and he prays, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And he prays it three times. The blood vessels in his forehead, the stress under which he finds himself is so great that they burst that they begin to sweat blood. He begins to sweat blood even there in the garden. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And when he finishes praying on a third occasion, he awakens the disciples who've been sleeping through much of this. And they begin to leave the garden and they are met by this mob of people. A mob of people who have come with sticks And with staves, anything that they can find to be able to take under arrest Jesus Christ. And do you know who it is that's leading them? It was one of his own disciples. His name was Judas. Can I remind you of something? You can be a learner, a disciple of Jesus, and not be a believer in Jesus. And there are people that today attach themselves to Christianity and attach themselves to the church and attach themselves to the way of the things of God, but they have never in their heart of hearts believed in Jesus as their own personal Savior. And Judas was one of those leading this crowd up the hillside on that day, thinking that they're going to take under arrest some kind of a rebel. And Judas betrays him with a kiss. One of the most beautiful signs of friendship, a kiss on the cheek. One of the most beautiful signs of friendship, he betrays him with a kiss. And then Jesus is led off. And through that night, through that Thursday night, what we think of as Friday morning would have been Friday by their time, by the way they kept time. But by the way we keep time, that Friday morning, through that night, Jesus endures six trials. There are six religious, there are three religious trials, and there are three civil trials. 
It was a long night. He is beaten on more than one occasion. He is mocked. He is brought before the people. And finally, in the early morning hours, they bring him out. What do you want me to do with him? What do you want me to do with him? We want you to crucify him. What, what crime has he committed? What has he done to deserve crucifixion? Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Again and again, these Judean Jews call out for the crucifixion of Jesus. They have rejected the one who has come to be their Messiah. Jesus is taken outside the city down the Via Dolorosa. It's a very narrow road. Mary and I have walked that road. It's a very narrow road lined with people. His beard is plucked from his face as people reach out and grab the hair of his beard and just hold on until they pull it from his face. His back is bleeding from where he has been whipped. And his robe has been put on and off and on and off, opening the wounds again and again. And they, get, they find themselves at a place called Golgotha, a hill called Golgotha. We call it Calvary. And they take the cross that Jesus began carrying but was then given to someone else to carry for him. And they lay him on the cross and they drive the nails through the base of his hands and through his feet. They lift that cross into place. And the Old Testament says that every socket of his body was out of joint. He was swollen almost beyond human recognition. He is suffering a death that's unlike anyone's death has ever been suffered. People are mocking him and laughing at him and they're crying aloud about him. As he hangs there, suspended between heaven and earth, they're gambling for his garments down here beneath. The soldiers who were the professional crucifiers, they knew exactly how to do this and to exact the greatest amount of pain possible. And he's dying on that cross between two thieves. By the way, one of those thieves becomes a believer himself. Because until you have drawn your last breath, it's never too late to trust in the Lord Jesus. And hanging on that cross, Jesus speaks seven times. I don't have time to give to you all of the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross of Calvary, but we've read one here this morning that's found in the 27th chapter in verse 46 when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to think about those words with me for just a few minutes today because they are some of the most baffling words that you'll ever consider if you'll stop and truly ponder what Jesus is saying in those moments. But we're talking about the eternal Son of God. We're talking about a member of the Godhead, the Trinity. We're talking about one of those who is with the Father and with the Son co-equal and co-eternal. We're talking about the Trinity where there is this 
communion unlike anything that you and I can even begin to understand. And yet on the cross of Calvary, he hangs there and he says, my God, my God, speaking to his father, why have you forsaken me? What could it possibly mean that Jesus is being forsaken on the cross at this moment in time? Some have wrongly concluded that this question that was raised by Christ while hanging on the cross indicated that he ceased to be divine in those moments and he was only dying as a human on that cross. In other words, they believe that during those fateful hours, Jesus was just an ordinary man dying by crucifixion. But that's impossible, friends. As one author writes, when Christ was forsaken by the Father, their separation was not one, not one of nature, essence, or substance. Christ did not, he did not in any sense or degree cease to exist as God or as a member of the Trinity. He did not, he did not cease to be the son any more than a child who sins severely against his human father ceases to be his child. Another says, this is by no means to be admitted that he ceased to be God as it would deprive his sacrifice of its infinite merit and consequently leave the sin of the world without an atonement. Take deity away, he says, from any redeeming act of Christ and redemption is ruined. No, 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 no. Jesus didn't cease to be God in those moments. Jesus continued to be divine, and even if we don't understand fully what his words mean and can't comprehend everything that we understand, we know that if he had ceased to be God, he would have been dying as nothing more than a human martyr for a great cause, but not as the vicarious sacrifice for our sins. He had to be both God and man in those moments. Others have suggested that in this question, Jesus was simply revealing the Old Testament prophecy to his persecutors, just claiming that he was, in fact, the Messiah. He's quoting from Psalm 22 when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that was pointing forward to the time that the Messiah would, in fact, come. And by quoting it, they're suggesting that what he's only doing is saying, I am the one who fulfills this prophecy. But I ask you a question. If he is the fulfillment of that prophecy, don't you think he would know whether or not he was separated from the Father? whether he was enduring a separation from the Father that he was experiencing, not, not just saying in identification with an Old Testament prophecy that he was experiencing exactly what the psalmist had described, that terrible separation that he cries out about from the cross. There's another idea about what it means when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is that he only felt abandoned. Dr. Clovis Chapel is a Methodist preacher, was a Methodist preacher in the early half of the 20th century. He was known as being one of the best preachers of his day, and he wrote a book called Preaching on the Words of Jesus, and I quote from his book. How did Jesus come by this conviction that he was forsaken? Of course, the full explanation is far beyond our powers. Of one fact, he says, at least we may be sure. It is this, our Lord was not in reality forsaken, 
On the contrary, God was never closer to his beloved son than he was during this hour. Again, I ask you the question, if Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He understands exactly what that verse means in the fullness of what that verse implies. And beyond that, it isn't that he just feels the separation from his father. It is that he's being separated from the father. How could one who had known such intimacy with his father not know if or that he was really abandoned on that cross? Surely the Son of God who had known this depth of intimacy would have been able to recognize if he had been truly abandoned. I was reading recently about the different arguments that people have about what Jesus says and what Jesus asks here on the cross. And you hear one theologian say this and another theologian say that. And you hear philosophers say this and philosophers say that. You know, sometimes I think we ought to just acknowledge our ignorance and just say, I don't have to understand it all, but I believe it all. That in those moments, Jesus hanging on the cross suffered a death that you and I can't even begin to comprehend. And while he was dying there, he was separated from the Father. That's an imponderable question that the reason why there are so many opinions is because we can't fully understand what it says. Martin Luther, the great reformer, went alone for a long time to ponder the meaning of this passage, and he returned, now listen, he returned as confused as when he started. There's just no way that our finite minds can fully grasp the depth of meaning of this cry from Christ. But I want you to understand something this morning, that worse than the beatings and worse than the bruises, and worse than the nails through his hands and his feet, and worse than the mocking of the crowd around him, was this temporary loss of intimacy he had always enjoyed with his father. And while I might not be able to tell you what exactly he was going through in those moments hanging on the cross. I can tell you why he was going through it. And that's what's most important. I want to read to you from eight different passages of Scripture. They'll be on the screens for you to follow along with me. I want to see if you can find the common theme of why Jesus had to die on the cross of Calvary and why he had to be separated from the Father while he was hanging there from about noon until 3 o'clock that day. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. You hear the words? Our transgressions, our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Or Romans chapter 4, verse 25, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 3, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Or Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Or 1 Peter 2, 24. Who himself, that's Jesus, who himself bore our sins, our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Or 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Or Finally, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Listen to those words. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction of the justice of God for our sins. Do you see the common thread? Those are only... Uh, some of the verses that I could have quoted to you today, but they make it very clear that while we might not fully understand what Jesus was saying when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We understand what he was going through. We might not understand what he was going through. We understand why he was going through it. And he was going through it because of our sins. Our sins and the sins of the whole world. In those hours from noon till about three when the whole earth went dark as if God had turned off the light switch and his son was hanging in the depth of that darkness suspended between heaven and earth, he was abandoned by his father as Jesus was paying the penalty and the price for our sins and not ours only, please hear me, but for the sins of the whole world. God didn't leave anybody out. And he doesn't leave anybody out of his invitation to come and be saved. He was giving himself for our sins. Understanding something of why the father separated himself from the son, we just need to ask the question, what does his cry of abandonment say to us today? We're reading it. We weren't there to hear it, but we can feel the emotion of the words as Jesus is speaking them, hanging from the cross, as he literally becomes sin for us. Well, first of all, his cry illustrates the consequences of sin. His cry illustrates the consequences of sin. The price that has to be paid for sin is separation from God. Please understand that death in the Bible doesn't always refer to the cessation of physical existence. You remember when God told Adam and Eve they weren't to eat of the forbidden fruit and they disobeyed God? He said, if you eat of that forbidden fruit, you're going to die. And they, they disobeyed God and they ate of the forbidden fruit and instantaneously they died. Not physically, they began physically a process of death, but instantaneously they died. What did that death mean? It meant they were separated from God. It's why they're hiding in the garden when God comes to the garden looking for them. 
Or think about what John, what John says about Jesus or what Jesus says in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus speaking says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed. Now listen, from death into life. Death into life. He's not talking about physical death into physical life. He's talking about being separated from God into being reconciled and made right with God. Or consider how, John, how Paul talks about it in the epistle of, of, of Ephesians, in the letter to the Ephesians. He says we were dead, not physically dead. We were spiritually dead, separated from God in our trespasses, in our sins. When you hear Jesus saying these words, we're seeing the illustration of what are the consequences of our sin and what is the consequences of your sin and mine. It is to be separated from God. I want you to hold your place here, but I want you to turn back with me to the book of Revelation for a moment. And I want you to listen to the final judgment. It's called the great white throne judgment. And I want you to see that Death does not necessarily mean the cessation of something, but it means the separation of something. And I want you to listen careful to this last judgment of those who are unbelievers in this world, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great, standing before God. If they're dead, how can they be standing before God? If they cease to exist, they don't cease to exist. They're standing before God. And books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books Listen, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. The bodies of those that were lost at sea or buried at sea give up those bodies. And death in Hades, death is the grave where the bodies go. Hades is the temporary holding place of the departed unbelieving. Death and Hades deliver up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. That's not a ceasing to exist. That's a separation from God forever. Verse 15, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let me make a statement to you that might catch you by surprise. You're not going to spend eternity in hell. You're not going to spend, if you don't believe in Jesus, an eternity in hell. Hell is mere, merely the temporary place where those who are departed and have not believed in Jesus are being held until the grave and Hades give up the dead. And then they are judged and they are cast into the place where they will spend their eternity. It's called the lake of fire. And when you look at this passage of Scripture and you hear what Jesus is saying on this day, you begin to understand that his cry 
illustrates to us the consequences of sin because Jesus was becoming sin. He became sin for us. The Father and the Son were separated from one another. I don't fully understand all that that means. I have an idea, but I don't fully understand it. I do believe it, but I can tell you that my sin brought separation between the Father and the Son, a separation the Father and Son had never known before what are the consequences of your sin if you don't believe in jesus it is to be separated from god forever and if you die in that state to be held in a place called hades what we commonly refer to as hell only to be given up at some point in the future for the great white throne judgment at which time you're placed in the lake of fire forever and forever and forever and forever The cry of Jesus on the cross illustrates the consequences of sin. Number two, his cry from the cross validates the holiness of God. It not only illustrates the consequences of sin, it validates the holiness of God. We've always known God to be holy, haven't we? But here is incontrovertible proof. A holy God cannot look on sin and simply pass it by and wink at it and let it go. Habakkuk says, you are of pure eyes, speaking of the Father, than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Because Christ had taken upon himself our sins, the Father who is holy had to turn away and abandon him on the cross. Tom Carter, who's a Christian author, writes, the disciples deserted Jesus. The disciples deserted Jesus because of fear. The demons turned against him out of hatred jealousy drove the religious leaders to plot against him but the father forsook the son because of holiness once jesus bore our sin on the cross our holy god he says had to abandon him completely when you look at the cross of calvary here's what it reminds us of it reminds us that god hates sin he hates my sin he hates your sin He hates the sin of the world because he is holy. Do you hear the words of the angelic hosts that are around the throne room and the prophetic scriptures when they're crying out, holy, holy, holy? What most separates God from us more than any other of his attributes is that God is utterly and absolutely holy, and you and I are utterly and absolutely sinful. And the only means of our forgiveness and the only means of our pardon is through the death of Jesus Christ when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That validates the holiness of God. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a well-known Presbyterian pastor and a Bible commentator. Probably some of you pastors in the room have his books in your library as I do. This is what he said. The people who teach that God is love without teaching that God is also hate have in reality another God who is Satan with a mask on. We sort of drifted in our churches today into a theology where we want to talk about God loving us, but we never want to talk about what God hates in our world. And while it's not people that God hates, it's sin that God hates. Let's be reminded that when Jesus cried on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
It not only illustrates the consequences of sin, it validates the holiness of God. There had to be a price that would be paid, and Jesus had come to pay it. This coming year, Susan Smith will be eligible for the first time for parole. Do you remember that name? She strapped her two little boys, a three-year-old and a 14-month-old, in the back seat of, their, of, their, of her car. And then she rolled that car into a lake, got out of the car herself, and she let those boys die, drown in the back of that car. She went on with a ruse as if somebody had stolen the car and it had kidnapped the boys and she was making pleas, if you remember, for someone to turn the car back in to bring her boys back to her, all the while in the back of her mind knowing that she was the one who was guilty. She was the one who had brought the death of her two sons. Starting at a very early age, Susan Smith suffered unspeakable tragedy. Her father killed himself when she was just six years old and she tried to follow suit at the age of 13. After her mother remarried, Smith's new stepfather began to molest her. Plagued by lifelong trauma, she married David Smith at 19 to start a family of her own. But in 1994, she destroyed her own family by murdering her own sons. Even David and Susan Smith had a rocky relationship that was plagued with mutual, mutual infidelity. Her husband had no idea that she suffered from depression and dependent personality disorder. He didn't know that his wife had been dumped by a wealthy South Carolina man because he didn't want any kids to have to be with him. But in spite of all of those things that you might know about her, that might cause you to have some measure, a little measure of sympathy toward her, her guilt, for killing her sons was undeniable. And it was not possible that the state of South Carolina or the judge could be just in his dealing with her and merely overlook her deeds without becoming a partaker in her crimes. Because justice had to prevail, a penalty had to be paid, no matter how difficult her life had been to that moment. Can I just tell you something? The same is true for God. In like manner, there's no question of our guilt before God, and he would not be just if he simply ignored our sin and passed over them and did nothing about them. Because he's a holy God, there is a penalty that has to be paid for sin. But here's the incredible thing. He sent his own son to pay it on our behalf. It's his holiness that demands the price his son paid for us. And if you want to see God's holiness and how it operates with sin, then listen to the words of Christ from the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This cry in the dark not only illustrates the consequences of sin and validates the holiness of God, but his cry as well demonstrates the love of God. And maybe this is where we really like to spend our time. Only a God who truly loves mankind would allow his own son to take our punishment for sin. 
I mean, all of the intimacy that Jesus had known with his father, the fellowship, the communion that he had known with his father, and yet God the Father loved us so much that he was willing to send his son to pay a price that the son did not owe that you and I owe. I mean, this intimacy and this oneness that he enjoyed with the Father that in some way was disturbed as he was hanging on the cross and becoming sin for us, somehow there was a separation that exists in those moments as Jesus is taking our penalty on himself. You realize that the Bible says that in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, the Word, and the Word was with God. And even during his earthly ministry, Do you understand what Jesus means when he says, he that sent me is with me, the Father hath not left me alone? Or the occasion in John 16 where he says, I'm not alone because the Father is with me? Or early in his ministry, at the beginning of his ministry, when he goes out into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan these 40 days and 40 nights out here in the wilderness, and what happens at the end of that time? An angel is sent from the Father to minister to him or when jesus finishes praying in the in the garden before he's arrested and taken away to the unjust trials what happens at the end of that time of prayer it says that the father had sent an angel to strengthen him i look at him the father and the son the love they have for each other but when jesus was hanging on the cross bearing your sin and my sin He was forsaken by all, including, including the Heavenly Father. That, my friends, is the greatest demonstration of love that has ever been shown to mankind. That's what Romans 5, 8 says, that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. I mean, if you're looking for a definition of what it means to be loved, here's your definition. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God gave his son. His cry on the cross of Calvary demonstrates the love of God for you and for me. There's a name that might not be as familiar to you, but if I say it, some of you are going to recognize it. Her name is Liz Curtis Higgs. Today, Liz Curtis Higgs is an author and a speaker, but she used to be a famous radio disc jockey, and she lived a very, very wild life without God. Did you know that on one occasion, even Howard Stern, one of the dirtiest and filthiest radio personalities you will ever find, told her she needed to clean up her act? That'll tell you the depths to which Liz Curtis Higgs had gone. Liz had been hurt by a number of men and ultimately became a militant feminist. But her Christian friend kept inviting her to church. Hey, Dear friends, may I stop here? Don't stop inviting those people to church. Don't stop inviting those people to church. You say they've turned me down 10 times, 20 times, 50 times, 100 times. Don't stop inviting them to church. 
her friend inviting, kept inviting her to church, and finally Liz went one day with her friend to church. Well, being a pastor, I understand what's about to happen. The pastor was teaching on the Bible verse that says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. <laughs> Not a very good verse to start with for a militant feminist. And Liz got upset, but she kept listening. And she heard the second part of the verse where it tells us that husbands, you're to sacrifice yourself. You're to give yourself for your wives just as Jesus sacrificed himself for the church and died for her. And when Liz heard that part of the verse, she leaned over to her friend and said with some cynicism, I'd gladly give myself to any man if I knew he would die for me. Her friend leaned over and said, Liz, there is a man who loved you enough to die for you. His name is Jesus Christ. That's how much he loves you. It wasn't very long after that that Liz became a believer in Jesus Christ. Her life was transformed and changed, became an author and a Christian speaker because that is what the love of God does when you receive it. His cry, this cry in the dark, illustrates the consequences of sin. It validates the holiness of God and it demonstrates the love of God for you and for me. In a moment, I'm going to give an opportunity for somebody here or somebody who's watching to receive Christ as your Savior today. For this to be the moment for you to believe in Christ as your only hope of the forgiveness of sins and the only hope of an eternal life with him. It's not hard. I'm not going to ask you to climb up the steps on your knees until they're bloody. I'm not going to ask you to come and stay here at the front until we whip you in some fashion and we beat out of you the evil and the sinfulness of your life. It is that I'm asking you to come to Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, my only hope is you. Jesus, today I trust in you. Jesus, I receive from you the gift of eternal life. I believe your death was for me and your resurrection was for me. Jesus, be my Savior. In a moment, I'm going to give you that opportunity. I'm going to give a lot of others of you an opportunity as well. This is Holy Week. This is the week we will remember the sacrifice of Christ on the cross of Calvary and I'm going to invite you to come and stand or kneel here at this altar and give thanks to God for the price that he paid for our eternal souls. You say, Pastor, I've never gone forward in a church service. Well, it's about time you start. <laughs> and you come and you kneel or you stand and you say, Jesus, thank you 
for giving your life for me. I don't understand all that it means when you were separated from your father while you were hanging on that cross, but I know that it illustrates the consequences of sin and it validates that you are a holy God and the only means of my eternal salvation is through your love. And I come to you and I trust in you or I come to you and I say thank you because I trusted in you when I was a child or I trusted in you when I was a teen or I was a young adult or I was a married uh, adult or a single adult. I trusted in Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You don't get to heaven because you're Baptist or Methodist or Pentecostal or Presbyterian or any other denomination. You get to heaven because you've trusted Jesus for eternal life. It's the only way you get to heaven. George Goodman has written a poem, I think that well expresses the message of the cross. Listen to it. In the cross of Christ I see all the love of God to me. He it was who loved and gave guilty, sinful men to save. In the cross of Christ I know something of my Savior's woe. I may surely read therein all the sinfulness of sin. In the cross of Christ I learn righteous judgment to discern. See the substitute for me, cursed and smitten on the tree. There I see my surety die for a sinner such as I. There my broken heart can trace all the riches of his grace. At the cross, my soul finds peace. From its burden, full release. There I may be reconciled. Hear that phrase? There I may be reconciled and confessed by God to be his child.